The Gospel according to Luke, the 18th chapter. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated and let us pray. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you for this day and this time together and the witness of your people and of these uh, readings from Jeremiah and Timothy and Luke, uh, reminders that we can put our trust in you and rely on you and not on ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. A, a couple events have etched this parable in today's gospel in my memory. One of them was that in my second year in seminary, our student choir director, selected Heinrich Schutz's musical setting of this parable as one of the pieces that we would take on tour. To sing the part of the tax collector, he chose a student from Sweden who had a particularly nasal voice. And all he sang was, Lord, unto me show mercy. But he asked me to sing the part of the Pharisee, and then at every concert he made a point of saying that it was typecasting. <laughs> Then some years ago, a group of pastors were studying this parable together, and one of the group defended this poor Pharisee as getting a bum rap, being criticized for merely doing what he was supposed to do. After all, he was the really religious one. He tithed, and meanwhile, the humble tax collector was probably collecting two or three times the actual tax. He was making a good show in the temple, but what about his life? The longer he talked, the more uncomfortably others in the group shifted in their seats. Some looked at the floor, some looked across the table and rolled their eyes as this guy droned on. Ever since his wife had left him, he'd been doing the very thing that Jesus told the parable to warn against, proclaiming his righteousness and despising in public his wife and anyone who might be friendly with her. Everyone else in the room heard his comments as a pathetic and angry commentary on the mess that he had made of his life. We saw him as the Pharisee in our midst. What he said about the parable was true, but he missed the point that Jesus told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt, which is exactly what our colleague had been doing. The great danger with attempts to be righteous is that one can easily become self-righteous. 
It's one thing to pursue holiness. It's quite another to believe that we have attained it and then to look down our noses at others. It's one thing to de detail our accomplishments to someone else. It's quite another to detail them to God as if God needed to know. We cannot trust in our own righteousness before God because it's always incomplete. Part of Jesus' point is that we are all actually in the position of the tax collector in our relationship to God. If we forget that and act like we are God's peers, we miss out on the benefits of faith in Jesus. We cut ourselves off from the renewing power of God in Christ. One sociologist of religion, Bruce Reed, uses this parable to describe the difference between functional and dysfunctional religion. Functional religion relies on God and dysfunctional religion relies on the self. The Pharisee's religion does not do for him what it could because he never stops depending on himself and what he has done. Even when he's praying, he's the center of his own righteousness. By thinking that he is wise and religious, he is neither. He never lets go enough to rely on God and thereby reap the benefits of that connection with the Creator. He misses the opportunity to step back from his life and fears and see them from a different perspective, which is part of the point of religious faith and worship. The tax collector's religion does what it's supposed to do. He depends on God in this time of worship and not on himself. He throws himself on God's mercy, having nothing to say except, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He presents no catalog of good works, nothing but an attitude of dependence on God. He's not answered his own religious questions. He's willing to wait for God's answer. The tax collector's prayer became the basis of one of the most popular prayers of Christians, the so-called Jesus prayer. It's ancient, it goes back to at least, I don't know, the second or third century, but it was made famous in the 1950s and 60s in American culture by J.D. Salinger's book, Franny and Zoe. Some of us of a certain age will remember J.D. Salinger as the author of The Catcher in the Rye, a book that was largely banned in the 1950s. I had to go to the local bookstore to buy it. I couldn't get it from the library. But the, this prayer is, is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's to be said over and over, like, like a mantra, until it becomes part of us, as natural as breathing, expressing our need for God's grace shown in Jesus. When I was training for marathons, <clears throat> I used it to kind of keep my head together while I was doing long runs, because you can kind of get distracted and forget where you are when you're running 20 miles. Um, and this prayer was part of having a focus, not on myself, but on, on God. It places us in a position of humility and openness before God. This is also why Lutherans baptize babies rather than waiting until we can make a decision for ourselves about believing. Baptizing infants shifts the emphasis away from our actions to God. We are baptized into Jesus' death and resurrection. We receive the promise of eternal life in baptism 
not because of something that we do or even something that we believe, but because God reaches out to us in Christ. St. Paul says we're not good enough to deserve God's favor and cannot make ourselves that good. Instead, in baptism, God gives us God's own righteousness by joining us to Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. Even the act of using water in baptism is a sign of the ultimate yielding or humility, death. As we die, as we are drowned in the waters of baptism, so, Paul says, we will rise with him. And that's not based on anything that we have done, but instead on God's action. All of us have died with Christ in baptism and will be raised with him, not based on our righteousness, but on Christ's. Dorotheus of Gaza, in a sermon to a group of monks in the sixth century, said that the Pharisee's sin was not boasting, but despising the tax collector. It is, he said, okay to boast of one's accomplishments, but it's not okay to sit in judgment of the spiritual life and well-being of another. It's not okay, as Jesus, as Jesus put it, to trust in ourselves and to regard others with contempt. Anytime we start comparing ourselves to others, we are likely to be relying on ourselves and our righteousness instead of on God. The Jesus Prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the tax collector's cry for mercy are ways to guard against the Pharisees' mistake. They help us to be grateful that we can depend on God when we gather for worship and out in our daily lives. We do not have to rely on our accomplishments nor make believe that we are righteous. We do not have to compare ourselves to others. Instead, we can pursue holiness and righteousness, however imperfectly, as a way to thank God for undeserved mercy toward us, the mercy shown to us in God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He alone is our hope. Amen.